All right, kids. You're welcome to find Molly in the back. Head on down for kids' worship. Um, unless you want to hang out here and catch a nap. I, uh, I really... <laughs> All right, so um, we sang that first song, Down by the River, and uh, we uh, had the opportunity to actually go, and I don't know if the song is particularly about uh, the river um, in Philippi, uh, but I think it does allude to it, which... Uh, is in Greece. It's the first place Paul went to in Macedonia that uh, this is the first church that he started in, in Europe. Um, we got to go there, uh, Molly and I and our team, um, and to see this, this little river. And it's not really a huge, like, um, touristy place. I mean, there's a church there and there's a little spot to, to kind of go and, and enjoy, like, the scenery. Um, but we got to go and see this place and sit around together, share our, our stories of baptisms and um, just kind of reflect on, on uh, God and what he's doing and, and how he uh, moves in our hearts. And um, it, it's interesting because when we went there, okay, the, the story as it goes is that uh, Paul had been in Turkey and he wanted to go uh, into Asia and preach the gospel, and the spirit of Christ was preventing him from doing that. He, he, I don't know if he understood why, but he just knew that, that God was not allowing him to go east. Finally, he gets a vision of a Macedonian man, and he knows that they're supposed to go west. And so they go uh, to Philippi, and uh, they don't find a synagogue there because there's not enough uh, Jewish people in, in Philippi. It's a Roman city. Um, and so they go to the next best place. A synagogue is basically just a church for Jewish people, okay, just to, to simplify that. And they go down to the river where they knew that people were praying and worshiping and spending time with God, and, and they, they go to kind of join them and to share with them uh, the gospel. And we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, tonight, or today, <laughs> uh, a little jet lag there, um, and um, the next few weeks, and the thing was, as we understood like what was happening in that moment when Paul's preaching the gospel, that the church is not a, really about a building. Um, and the church is always, well, I shouldn't say always, the church should know that. That what church is, is not structures and buildings. Um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the reality that the manifest presence of God in the person who believes in Jesus is the church, okay? Which means when we're down by the river, that river was special to us because it, it holds a, a, a near and dear place to our hearts in the story of how the church spread throughout Europe and throughout the world. Um, but God is not any more present at that church or at that river than he is uh, anywhere else necessarily. There was a beautiful church building on the property and had all these wonderful mosaics and, and paintings and, and just a beautiful structure. 
um, that's not really the church. The river is not really the church. The, this building is, is just a facility that we, we use in order for the church to gather. We, we were in many church buildings that were mind-boggling. I mean, just like astounding in their architecture, in their size, in their beauty. The, the priceless artwork that was in some of these buildings was just amazing. Um, the, the domes that were painted, uh, they, they, in some of them they use 24 karat gold all through the, the structure to decorate these buildings. And we call them churches, but those aren't really churches. You and I are the church. Amen? And no matter where we go to have church, um, we're taking the Holy Spirit with us, and we can have uh, moments where, where we sense the presence and the power of God whether it's a beautiful building that's air-conditioned or it's a, a place down by the river or it's, you know, in El, in El Salvador, there have been times of such fantastic worship that is dirt floors and cinder block walls and just, you know, just a heart that wants to worship. That's the church. I mean, the church is you and me uh, loving Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, as we dive into this in the next few weeks, I, I want to help us to understand something that I think gets lost, um, which is that the Holy Spirit is not a concept. We, we talk about the Holy Spirit. We, we use the terminology like uh, it's a, uh, an, a thing or a force or an idea or a theology, but the Holy Spirit is a person. And it's a person that we relate to, and it's a person that lives inside of us, and it's a person that, that uh, has moments of, of more presence and less presence and more power, and, and, uh, and sometimes uh, we feel him very closely, and sometimes we feel distant, and why, and who is this, and, and how does he work, and how do you relate to him in, in your life, okay? We're going to dive into all those things. But the thing about the Holy Spirit, and why Jesus ascended. And we're not, I'm not going to really talk about the ascension of Jesus that much, other than the reality that he left in order to institute the age of the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, he doesn't explain it, he just tells us um, something very interesting. He says, John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Like, that doesn't seem correct to us. It's to your advantage that I leave. He's, he, he has paid the price for sin, okay? He has validated and confirmed that he is the Messiah. And then he is going to rise from the dead, okay? So he's, he is immortal. He is indestructible. He's present on the earth. And he's going to say, well, it's going to be better for you that I leave rather than stay. That doesn't seem to, to make sense to us. Now that you've done all this, why don't you stick around personally, physically, manifestly, and tell everybody who you are and, and the reality of being saved and just teach us and lead us and guide us and change the world. Why don't you... But he says this. He says it's to your advantage because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to talk about that particular 
um, issue what the Holy Spirit does in a few weeks uh, or in a couple weeks. But right now, what we want to understand is that the Holy Spirit is an advantage to us that the world has never, had never seen before. And he is with us and he is in us and he empowers us to do things that you can't do otherwise. And why I say that initially is because I think, and here's where I'm going off script. You're like, do you use a script? (laughs) Um, I think the church, by and large today, is lacking in its spiritual dependence. I think we do a lot of things on our own, in our own strength, in our own intelligence, in our own wealth, in our own understanding. Um, And we have neglected a lot, and maybe this is not fair to say across the board, um, just in my perspective, that we don't depend, and maybe we don't understand how much we need to depend on the Holy Spirit, how much we need to love Him and get close to Him. One of the reasons, potentially, why the church doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot is because one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, his role, his job, is to exalt Christ, to point to Christ, to get people to understand who Jesus is. That's, he, he teaches us about Jesus. And maybe he doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself because of that. But we oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this, we oftentimes neglect understanding who he is, the Holy Spirit, what he does, how important he is, how present he is, and, and really our need for him. So for the next few weeks, and really, and not just for the next few weeks, but especially for the next, next few weeks, we're going to dive into who is the Holy Spirit and, and what does he do in our lives, okay? So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. We're in uh, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11. This is the, the story, the account of the ascension of Jesus. Um, and it says this, in the first book, O Theophilus. Let me pause there for a second. Theophilus is a transliteration of a Greek word that means lovers of God. In my first book, O lovers of God, people who love God, this is what I said. I, I think that Theophilus really was directed at the church, not at one person named Theophilus, my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. But I read it this way. In the first book, O lovers of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom 
to Israel. In other words, Lord, are you going to stick around and just accomplish everything right here on earth that, that we know the Old Testament prophesies? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And Lord, we are so looking forward to that day. Lord, the, uh, the conclusion, the, the reward the end of, of pain, suffering, and death, and um, sin, <laughs> confusion. Lord, you, you're going to put it all away. You're going to restore everything the way that it, it was always intended. You're going you're gonna to bring us into that kingdom. You're going to allow us somehow to rule with you. You're going to give us uh, fantastic jobs, Lord, that uh, we're going to love. You're going to give us new bodies that uh, we'll never be ashamed of. Lord, you're going you're gonna to restore this earth, Lord, to the perfection and, and actually beyond that, recreate it even better. And uh, you're going to be with us presently. Lord, we thank you that you are with us now, that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, that your Holy Spirit dwells among us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is, is here and available to anyone, everyone who would take that leap of faith and say yes to Jesus. Lord, we pray for that power. Lord, without it, we can do nothing. There's nothing that we can say or do to, to change a life, Lord, without the presence of your Holy Spirit to come in, transform, rest upon, um, abide within. Lord, there's nothing that we can do other than just simply proclaim and be faithful to proclaim the truth of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that as we do that, Lord, not just right now, Lord, in this message, but every day, wherever we go, when we go to work, when we go to school, when we meet with friends, when we go home, Lord, that, uh, that truth, that message of Jesus um, would shine through, would be clearly understood. And that your Holy Spirit would go with us, behind us, in front of us, around us, and, and uh, open people's hearts. Your word says that no one can come to you unless you draw them. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit right now is drawing people to yourself, just making us aware of your presence. And uh, Lord, we'll just give you all the praise. We thank you. We get to be part of your plan. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the role or the work, the presence uh, of the Holy Spirit changed um, from uh, even from the time of Jesus' ministry to what he's going to, to see happen in Pentecost. So time-wise, how this works, um, Jesus was... Uh, experiencing the Last Supper with his disciples. It was Passover. Um, and 50 days from Passover is what we call Pentecost. Um, 
Jesus was crucified on that Friday. Uh, he was raised on that Sunday, um, and he spent 40 days with his disciples. So basically, okay, just so you have a picture of this, um, when Jesus ascends, it's going to be exactly one week, seven days, one week later that Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Even in that week, things are going to change. Okay? Things of, of how the Holy Spirit manifests himself on the earth. It's going to change radically and it's going to change forever. Um, so you have to understand a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is in terms of how he was working um, how he was moving in the Old Testament. Now, he's all through the Old Testament. His, his name is spoken throughout the Old Testament. He was there at creation. He's, he's talked about, people understood that when they um, experienced a movement of God, they were experiencing God's spirit. Um, but because of the reality that Scripture tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that the the limitation of animal sacrifices to and really forgive sins, the Holy Spirit cannot, according to God's own rules for himself, okay, he cannot be present on the earth in the same way that he will, able, he will be enabled to be at Pentecost. Because, this is kind of an inference on my part, so, but this is the way I, I understand it. If the Holy Spirit were as present in the Old Testament as he was able to be at Pentecost, what would happen was, it's not that he couldn't be, it's that he would be a spirit of judgment. He, he would be basically executing the sin uh, of people on the earth in such a way that no one would survive. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid with his blood for the sin of the world perfectly. Essentially, I mean solving the whole issue of the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the sacrifices and the fulfillment of the need for a Messiah. When Jesus did that, that was the event that enabled the Holy Spirit to come and actually be a positive presence in people's lives without destroying them in the process. Okay, Now he can come into your life and fill you and recreate you because your sin has been paid for. Before that, God would have to make an exception through the sacrifice of animals and through his own purposes, okay? And so in the Old Testament, what happens is that the Holy Spirit is with some people, just a few handful of people um, who have the Holy Spirit throughout their life. One was Moses. Moses uh, was one person who, because of God's call on him to be a leader of, of his people, Moses experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life perpetually, okay? And it actually says that uh, Moses prophesied and he wanted, he, he writes this, he wanted everybody to experience the Holy Spirit the way that he experienced. He wanted everybody to have that same spirit. And he knew that somebody was going to come and he prophesied that there would be one who would come like him, he says, like Moses, there'll be a prophet that will fulfill what Moses was really just the, the foreshadowing of. That's Jesus. Someday he's going to come, the, the prophet. And then after that, then there's this prophecy that anyone who will put their trust in that Messiah can receive that same spirit that Moses had. You have the spirit that Moses had if you're a believer. 
That same spirit that led him to lead the, uh, the people of Israel those 40 years in the desert who, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, who received the Ten Commandments, who split the, the Red Sea by raising a staff. I mean, that spirit is in you. Isn't that freaky to think about? And what I see on your face is that you don't believe it. Intellectually, we know it's true. We have a hard time sensing it, don't we? David had the spirit perpetually. He, he said, even after he sinned with Bathsheba and he repented, he said, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. He, he knew he had the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit consistently, not always to the same degree, not always um, leading him the way that, that he should. And that was David's fault, not the spirit's fault. But he had the spirit consistently. Um, Elijah had the spirit on him, resting on him, with him. In fact, when Elijah and Elisha, and I always wish that those names could be a little bit more different sounding, but Elijah and Elisha, as they're going to the place where Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, and uh, he he asks him along the way, he says, uh, what can I do for you? What do you want? What do you want from me? Uh, what can I pray for you about, basically? And, he, and Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Not Elijah's spirit, but the Holy Spirit that was on Elijah. And Elijah says, I, I don't really have that power <laughs> to grant that for you or to promise that to you, but I will tell you this, according to what he knew and understood from the Holy Spirit to be revealing it to him, he said, if you see me go into heaven, you will have what you've asked for. And so... Along the way, chariots of fire divide Elijah and Elisha. They separate them, and then Elijah goes into heaven in a whirlwind. He didn't go in in the chariot of fire. He went in the whirlwind. Elisha saw it, and so Elisha did receive a double portion of that spirit. In fact, Elisha does like 10 times more miracles than Elijah ever did. But on him, resting on him, uh, for the purpose of God to be a prophet. It wasn't available to every single person. It's not like every person who believed in God in the Old Testament had the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. They didn't. Sometimes a leader would get the Holy Spirit. Sometimes uh, a king, a prophet, a priest. You know, they had moments. They had the judges would receive a powerful, inflowing moment of the Holy Spirit, and it allowed them to do mighty acts. Samson, for instance. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He tore the doors, the gates off of this, this city, and he carried him on his shoulders out to a hill, and he dropped him uh, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just supernatural power. He took the, the jawbone of a donkey. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he killed a thousand people. Uh, King Saul received the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, and he was able to do things. And, and then what happened with him was the Holy Spirit would leave him when he disobeyed. When he refused to follow God's will, the Holy Spirit would, would be removed from him. In fact, in Saul's life, that spirit of God was replaced with an evil spirit that tormented him. And this is kind of the thing that happens in the Old Testament. And so the thing about Elijah and Elisha okay, is that there's an important aspect of who the Holy Spirit is that is revealed in that, that moment or in, in that occasion, which is that... The Holy Spirit 
he is always referred to in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as breath or, or wind. Okay, spirit and um, wind are the same word in both Greek and Hebrew. And what God is, I believe, trying to reveal and, and help us to understand is that the Holy Spirit, he expands and he contracts. He, he's bigger and more present at some times, and he kind of, he, he's contracting at other times. There, there are moments when you sense his presence. Are, are there moments that in worship that you sense God just more tangibly, manifestly present than at other times? Or, or certain Sundays where you're just like, man, I, I, as soon as I stepped into the building, I felt like God was just here and just filling the place, and I could just almost sense like, man, God's going to do something today. And then other times, you walk in and it's like, it's like, what is going on? I, and I, I always wonder about that. I do. I, I, I wonder. But here's what I know is that um, the Holy Spirit, this is, this is his personality. It's who he is. We don't control him. He, he'll show up in power sometimes and do things that he's going to do. That he, it's, his, it's his prerogative. I don't control how much of him is, is here or not here. He's always present, but he's not always manifestly experienced to the same degree. That's who he is. And that's part of how we as Christians experience him in our own lives, that we, sometimes we sense him very, very close, and sometimes we're like, man, God, where'd you go? You ever had that? And if you're a believer, and this is the truth and the promise that you, you have to understand this, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the scripture promises that you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. He is in you. He, he has transformed you. He has recreated you. He, it is your, your guarantee of salvation or of eternal life. Okay? You cannot lose that. But it doesn't mean that that spirit might not sometimes contract. And you might sense less of him in your life. And we're going to talk about why that might be sometimes. Um, but it's important for us to grasp a couple important truths. One is that he does expand and contract in our lives. And two, um, we have a, a superior advantage because of Pentecost. So what happens is that the disciples experience the Holy Spirit in different ways. They, they had an Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit during Jesus' ministry. They would receive the Holy Spirit in power, go out and preach and see, you know, demons are subject to their preaching and, and their commands and people were healed and, and they could uh, do things that you just are mind-boggling and amazing. And then other times they were just like doing it in their own strength. Um, but when Jesus rose from the dead, what happened was it, they received the Holy Spirit that day. Do you know that? John chapter 20 tells us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his disciples. Thomas, unfortunately, was not with them. Thomas was off doing his own thing. But the rest of the disciples were together, and Jesus met with them. And John 20, uh, verse 21, says, As the Father has sent me, Jesus talking to his disciples, even so I'm sending you. 
which is a, an important clue, okay? The Holy Spirit empowers the disciples, you and me as believers, are sent, okay? We are the witnesses. He's the power, we're the witnesses. But he says this, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. Notice the connection between breath or wind, okay, with spirit. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So 10 of the disciples, 10 of the apostles, received the Holy Spirit the same day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, this is 40 days before he's talking to them and, and about to go into heaven. They've experienced the presence internally of the Holy Spirit this whole time. And then while he's getting ready to go to heaven, he says that they will receive power. They will receive a, an outpouring. They will receive a baptism, that there will be more of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit available not only to them, but also to the world. Okay, They, they need to wait for that. They don't know when that's going to happen. But even though they have the Holy Spirit, this is, this is what's kind of interesting to me, is that they have the Holy Spirit. They, they've received it. They've had him for 40 days. And yet Jesus says, wait until you receive this power. It's not a contradiction. It's not like John said, you know, oh, they received the Holy Spirit, but Luke didn't know that. And so he's saying they're going to receive this. That's, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that they've received the deposit. They have the presence of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has not been poured out in its fullness, in his fullness, on the earth. So they could theoretically go out and preach the gospel before they, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the, on the earth. They could do that because they have the Holy Spirit, but it wouldn't affect much because the Holy Spirit is not just a power for those who are preaching. It is a power for those who are hearing. Okay, we're going to talk about Pentecost next week. But I pray, I pray daily, and I pray especially fervently on Sunday uh, for the Holy Spirit. I ask for the Holy Spirit. I ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I ask for a filling of the Holy Spirit. I ask for a baptism in the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I'm always asking for, for the Holy Spirit to have more of me and to me have more of the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to be as fully um, expanded in my life as, as possible when I'm preaching. Why? I mean, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if I've ever really talked about this. The reason why I don't use notes in preaching um, is because over the years, what I felt was a leading of the Holy Spirit to depend more on him than on things that I had written. I write the sermon out, okay? I study and I write and I write out outlines and I write out verbatim things that I, I want to say and stories that I want to tell and um, I do that and I go over it and I think about it and I pray about it. And, but I, I felt over the years that God was saying, you have to trust me in this moment. And I'm going to tell you that, number one, God has never failed me. But number two, I have failed him. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it, I remember one time in particular, I just, I felt so alone. I felt like I was preaching out of my own strength to the degree, I mean, I literally, literally, thought, 
I need to just stop preaching and get off the stage and ask for, for forgiveness. <laughs> like I just felt like I, I was not preaching from grace. I was just preaching out of whatever strength I had, which is zero. I mean, it really is nothing. And, and here's why I, I say that is because I do have that challenge and that opportunity every week to experience my need for the Holy Spirit. I, I have that every week. I'm not saying that makes me a better person, better Christian, better pastor than anybody. It, it doesn't. But I, I know, I know how much I need him. And what I fear and some of my concern for, for other people is that if we're not pushed into scenarios where we know just how much we need the Holy Spirit, we can, can, we can fool ourselves into thinking that I don't really need God to do, to do what I'm doing. You really can. You can go through large portions of your life and, and, and get by on your own strength and think, it's okay. And kind of intellectually, I know I need God, but in my daily experience, I don't feel that like he's really necessary. You know what a problem that is? That, that's a huge problem. Because the reality is, without that power... There are some really huge mistakes that the church can make. I'll give you two. Two major mistakes that Christianity as a whole makes when we start doing things in our own strength rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit. One is that Christianity becomes a religion. It's a religion. I went to church after church after church in Greece and Rome, Italy, where... You saw huge, fantastic structures, and I know that they were built to the glory of God. I know that they were, they were intended to uh, showcase how glorious and awesome and amazing God is in all his grandeur. Look at the architecture. Look at the domes. Look at the artwork. Look at you know, just how extravagant it is. It all is supposed to showcase how glorious God is, and yet nine out of ten or more of these structures were completely devoid of the presence of Christians other than tourists coming in to gaze at a, a church <clears throat> that has become a museum. And the reason why is because we get so caught up in building things and doing things and organizing things and making it a, I don't know, a business or what do you want to call it, to where that becomes the point instead of the church being the people that was always really God's intention. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying tear those buildings down. If God wants to tear them down, he can tear them down. I don't think he cares that much about them. <laughs> I mean, he's willing to destroy the temple in Jerusalem a couple different times to say, it's not about the building, guys. It's about people. That's one side of it, this religion thing. I think religion gets in the way of, of the reality of, of the need for Jesus and the need for the Holy Spirit and the desire just to have a relationship with him. 
You don't have to be Catholic. You don't have to be Greek Orthodox or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist. I mean, any church, any particular church congregation, this congregation could become religious. It has that potential. We tend not to be because, I don't know, my personality is I don't like that stuff. <laughs> but it could still be, you got to go to church every Sunday, right? And you got to, and we can make a religion out of it, even if it's not very ceremonial. Even though we might try to get away from tradition, it still could become a religion devoid of, of authentic re relationship. It still could become that. Here's the other thing. Probably more of a tendency, I'm just going to be honest, is that on the other side of the spectrum is when leaders in churches become so infatuated with their own fame and their own ego and their own success that that becomes the whole point, is just building a bigger and better and, and more wonderful you know, ministry that people love and respect, and, and yet there's no power of the Holy Spirit really guiding the people at the top, so to speak. I call it celebrity pastor syndrome, okay? It's this idea of you have people who are building huge and just amazing ministries, and yet you find out over the time that they're, they're living a double life. They're immoral. They're completely devoid of, of normal Christian convictions. And yet they're saying all the right things. And, and what it tends to look like is that they're using the gospel as a means to make themselves famous or make themselves rich. Not saying that everybody who is you know, a well-known celebrity pastor is definitely wrong. I'm not saying that at all. There, there are many that are wonderful. I'm certain of that. But there are some who, they're scoundrels, <laughs> okay? They're just using a basic Orthodox Christian message to, to promote themselves. That can happen, okay? It doesn't mean that people get saved under those ministries aren't still saved. It's just a, it's an issue that we have to get to the heart of why do people that we honor and respect and think are great, you know, get revealed as being fake? And how, do, I mean, does that ever bother you? I mean, I've followed some people that I really liked and I really appreciated their message and I thought they were right on on so many points and then I find out that they're, they're, they're false and you think, well, how does that happen? And this is how it happens is because somehow self-promotion becomes the issue and it's not really the promotion of the gospel. It's just the gospel is being used. But here, again, I got to bring it back to us because you're the ones <laughs> I'm talking to. I'm not talking to, you know, the, the whole world here. I'm talking to this congregation. What about you? What about me? Am I dependent on the Holy Spirit? Do I relate to the Holy Spirit? Have I asked for the Holy Spirit to come in and reveal the junk in my heart 
to get rid of the things that are distracting me, whether it's a a religion issue or whether whether it's a pride issue or a sin issue or just a a simple step of obedience, uh, will I do what he wants me to do? Will I acknowledge what he's saying to me? Or am I going to keep doing what I want to do and say, well, I'm saved. I mean, this is our biggest, probably, our biggest problem in this church in maybe, all right, I don't know, if, I don't want to be too honest here. <laughs> the biggest problem that people tend to seem to have is that I'm saved and that's enough. And we're not, we're not concerned about being a good witness to friends, neighbors, coworkers, students. I'm not worried about it because I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. So I don't have to go to church to be a good Christian. And that's true. And I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. And I, if I swear sometimes, if I drink sometimes, if I whatever, stumble into pornography sometimes, if I, what, I mean, it's just like, we're so cavalier with, with our life because we're so convinced that I'm, I'm going to heaven, that's all I need. And the Holy Spirit, if he's working in your life, he's going to make you feel bad about that stuff. And here's the, I'm just kind of rambling at this point, so... <laughs> I I probably need to just quit, but the issue is that we can stifle the Holy Spirit, we can squelch the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know that? The Bible tells us we can do that. You can sear your own conscience. You can run towards sin. You can run away from God. He can deflate so much in your life that you don't hear His voice. And, And you can go on and you can, you can sear your conscience. Searing your conscience means you no longer feel guilty about sin. Like, I can just go do this thing and I don't even feel bad about it anymore. You know what a huge red flag that is? Like, you're in real danger. Real danger. Not just in, like, destroying your life, which is terrible, but you're in real danger of proving that you're not actually a Christian. Like the Holy Spirit's job, and we're going to get into this in two weeks, his role is to convict you of sin. And some people have slidden into Christianity and they've kind of said, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I got baptized and I went through the whole thing and have never one moment in their life felt convicted about sin. And yet convinced that they're saved because... Yeah, I I think those things, and I agree with those things. And what we have is probably, in some cases, people who've been converted to thinking Christian things, but they have not been transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what we got to have. We need the transformation of the Holy Spirit. You can expand the role and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life by the things that you do, think, say, how you respond. 
When, when you have unrepentant sin in your life, the Holy Spirit's going to deflate. When you don't obey Him when He's leading you, the Holy Spirit's going to deflate. When you, when you uh, live with unforgiveness in your life, the Holy Spirit's going to deflate. When you refuse to step into the calling and the ministry that God has gifted you to do and, and prepared for you to do and given you the opportunity to do and you just don't do it because you don't want to or it's too, you're too busy, whatever, the Holy Spirit will deflate. You... You can deflate the Holy Spirit, the fire of your faith, by just refusing to open this book. Just, I'm not going to, well, I should, probably should read the Bible. How long has it been? Oh, it's been a month. Okay, well, I'll go read a passage. The Holy Spirit is just, he's shrinking. And when's the last time you spent some time in prayer, like really serious, honest time in prayer? You don't do that. If you just go on your way, the Holy Spirit deflates. You don't spend time really worshiping. I mean, you can be sitting in these chairs or standing in this sanctuary singing the songs and not worship. Right? I, I, I sing the song. I like the song. And I never once think about God in that whole moment. Week after week, week after week, I'm here. Yeah, I'm going through the motions. I'm doing the things. And no sense of God's presence. That's deflating and sh shrinking and, and going back into your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday without a thought about how I'm evidencing Jesus to other people. That convicts me. When I was in uh, Greece, we were with a missionary. Uh, his name is James and he was so on fire for Jesus. He just loves Jesus, and he wants people to know about Jesus. Um, here's what happened. James's story, a little bit. He's an Afghan um, soldier. He's a refugee. Uh, but he, he was in the army when he was 17, 18 years old. He was um, special ops, uh, a Muslim, okay? He's, he's an Afghan um, soldier, and he came into contact with a, another soldier from Europe who was a Christian. Didn't say, I'm a Christian, you need to be Christian. They weren't allowed to, okay? They're working with Muslims, and they're not allowed to say or proselytize or evangelize or anything. They're just, like, there to help. And so, but because of the way he lived so obviously, and um, he had such grace and generosity and kindness, James caught it. He's, he understood this person is a Christian. This is why they act this way. And so he wanted to get a Bible. Even though he disagreed with Christianity, he would argue night and day until he's blue in the face that Islam is right and Christianity is wrong. He, he wanted to find out why Christians acted this way. So he went and he got a Bible. It was illegal for him to do that. He had a friend who had a bookstore. He asked his friend if he would sell him a Bible. The friend illegally found, got one, gave it to him or sold it to him. And uh, James just wanted to study, see why Christians think the way that they do, why they act the way that they do. He was not a Christian yet. He got found out. The, the imam or the, the leader, the, the religious leader of his community found out that he had a Bible and they arrested him or took him. 
and put him in jail. The imam's in, in charge, okay? Even though he's an Afghan soldier, doesn't matter. The religious leader's in charge. They put him in jail. They threatened him day after day. If you don't tell us where you got this Bible, if you don't admit that you're a Christian, we're going to kill you. Now, James says he knew that if he did say where he got the Bible, that person and their whole family would be killed and James would be killed too. And he wasn't willing to do that. So their process is for a week, they threaten you, threaten you, they lock you up, they put you in miserable conditions. Uh, they don't quite torture you, but close. But after a week, they're going to torture you and kill you. Okay, so six days have gone by. Now it's Friday. And um, James, I mean, he's read a little bit of the Bible. He understands a little bit about who Jesus is. The next day, he's going to die. They're going to kill him. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to withstand the torture, whether or not he's going to give up the people that gave him the Bible. He says Friday, God, you're, you're the Savior, or Jesus, you're the Savior. You can save me. If you save me, I'll believe in you. So Friday night is the time of um, prayer. I mean, they have prayer every day, but the Friday prayer service is like one hour long, and it is very serious, and everybody goes, and nobody misses, okay? What happened was that night, they all go to their time of prayer to the mosque. James's neighbor's son comes, finds James, breaks him out of jail at the risk of his own life, and, and rescues James. James hadn't talked to them. He'd, I don't know how this person knew where James was or how to find him or how to break him out or anything. But that night, James became a Christian because he knew Jesus is the Savior and he can save me. And he trusted him. James had to leave Afghanistan because if his family, his family hated him and still does hate him, if his community finds out where he is, they'll kill him. That's just their policy. He's a traitor. He has betrayed Islam and become a Christian. They're not going to allow him to live. He left Afghanistan, went to Greece, and what he does is he doesn't get paid for this. It's not his job. It's just his heart. He goes to Afghan refugee camps who are still Muslims. Okay, they've left because of war and other economic issues. Sometimes there's a Christian in the camp, but very rarely, very few. He goes to the camp and he just shares coffee, juice, tea, toys, whatever he can with kids and families, and he just loves them. He's witnessing to them. He's not saying, you need to become a Christian. He, if he does that, he will be probably harmed, and he has been harmed. Um, he got, I'm, I'm way over time, I'm sorry. He had somebody who said they were interested to hear more about Christianity and he went to their house and they ambushed him and beat him up. And yet he wants to continue. He goes three, four times every week to these camps just to share Jesus with these refugees. That's, he's, he wants to witness to them. He wants them to know Jesus because he knows how important Jesus is. He wants them to experience the Holy Spirit in their life the way that he's experienced in his life. And it, it convicts my heart to think about what he's willing to do. He actually wants to go back to Afghanistan and be, be a missionary in Afghanistan. 
if he does that, he will almost certainly die. And yet he's committed and he wants to do that. I'm not going to send him any money to do that. <laughs> I'd like him to stay in Greece and keep working where he's at and stay alive. But if the Holy Spirit calls him back to his country to share the gospel with those people, then more power to him. Amen? What about us? What about me? What about you? I mean, are we so in love with our Savior that we want people to be in love with him too? Are we motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit enough? We don't have to risk our life. You don't have to, I mean, the most you're probably going to risk is somebody saying, I don't want to hear about that. For most of us, it might just make us uncomfortable. It's the extreme that we're going to go through if we try to share Jesus with somebody. In a lot of cases, people are receptive. Like, hey, would you come to church with me? We, I mean, you don't even have to try to get people saved. You just say, hey, why don't you come hear about Jesus? Sit through a very long boring message and maybe some part of it will grab your heart. I don't know. I mean, this is what we're, we're here for. Amen. Just how do we reach people? How do we transfer this thing that we've been gifted with? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. We, uh, we don't get to choose how much power we have. We've been promised the deposit. We've been told we can ask for more of your presence. Lord, we uh, seek to live in a way that's honoring to you, that you would be pleased to, to be among us in a more present, powerful way. And we pray that as we witness for you however, wherever, whenever you want us to, uh, that your spirit would be present and powerfully available to save as many as possible. You call, you draw, you change, you save. Lord, we, we simply are called to be your witnesses. Lord, help us to do that. Help us not to forsake doing that for any reason. To live just a, a kind generous, gentle, humble life, Lord, that people would see as exceptional and know it's because of Jesus. And we'll give you all the praise, Lord. It's, it's all about you, and we thank you that it is in Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Spirit's got to do his work. Amen. If he's moving on your heart, then I think you know it. And if there's something that you want to just solidify in a moment at the altar, then would you do that, please? Let's stand and sing.